Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. You are listening to Three Triple R. It is a great Sunday here in one of the hotspots, West Brunswick, uh, but we are very, very isolated here in the studio because it's probably the cleanest place on the planet as far as I can tell. It smells very, very um, scented. We've got you for an hour of science now. Some amazing guests are going to be on the line a little bit later in the show, but uh, for the moment, I am joined with three of my co-hosts. Dr. Ray, good morning. Morning, Dr. Shane. You well? I am, and, and dancing up a storm with the Einstein and Goko. Uh, theme song. So, you know, that's like my office video exercise for the day. <laughs> uh, Stacy, good morning. Hi, Dr. Shane. How are you going? You still isolated in the country somewhere, keeping away from us city folk? Yep. Yep. Living the dream up here. Living the dream. <laughs> and talk- yeah, I, am, I am missing you in the studio. Yeah. Look, it's not the same, but uh, still we're getting by. Dr. Ailey, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you going? I'm going uh, well. And uh, I guess uh, we, we should start with you, actually, with news, because you always bring in something climate-related, but uh, well, most of the time. But today, you've got something even uh, more fascinating, actually, you're exciting I, us about earlier. I do. Well, I think it's really exciting. It's it's about earthquakes this time, and, and everybody, well, I don't know if everybody loves a good earthquake if, you, if you're under it. But um, this is actually some really interesting research that's come out of the uh, Scripps Oceanographic Institute uh, in San Diego, California. Um, now, back on the 28th of September 2018, which feels like a lifetime ago now, but mm. uh, it wasn't actually that long ago, um, some of you might remember that there was a pretty nasty tsunami that hit a place called, I think it's Palu or Palu Bay on uh, Sulawesi Island in Indonesia. Um, now, there was a five-metre tsunami, kind of came out of nowhere. There was very little warning. It was an associated with a magnitude 7.5 earthquake, which is pretty big. Um, but the problem was that, as I said, there was little to no warning and people just didn't know where this tsunami had come from. There was an earthquake, but the problem was that this bay sits on top of a fault line that doesn't usually cause tsunamis. Hmm. So, um, you know, unfortunately resulted in the deaths of nearly 4,500 people, so it was pretty devastating. Um, but what usually causes a tsunami is when you have a, a fault line, you know, uh, in under the earth, well, at the earth's, under the Earth's surface, whereby uh, you get kind of one half, um, you know, at the fault that, you know, uh, how do I say this, a, a section of the Earth kind of rises rapidly, really, really quickly. And so it kind of pushes the water up and causes a wave and in you go. It's what we call a displacement wave. But the problem is that Palu Bay actually sits on what we call um, a strike-slip fault whereby usually when there's an earthquake, it's caused by a lateral movement. So there's no vertical movement of the earth to actually cause a tsunami in the first place. So they were saying, well, what's going on? Now, at the time, um, uh, a lot of the 
the scientists in the area speculated that it could have been a submarine landslide. And submarine landslides have been responsible for some pretty massive tsunamis in the past. There was one in Alaska that's like the biggest ever recorded, I think. I uh, can't remember the exact height, but I think it was on the order of 12-metre tsunami in Alaska in a bay there that was caused by a submarine landslide back in the 60s, I think it was. But still, nobody knew. And the problem with this was that there was just no warning. So the question was, was it a failure of the warning system or was it just an unpredictable tsunami? And so what these researchers at Scripps Oceanographic Institute did was they grabbed some uh, satellite data, land altimetry data, but then they combined that with uh, social media posts. How do you do that, you ask? It's, it sounds really strange, but what they did was they grabbed pictures and video of the damage that was geotagged and timed and they had a look at where the worst damage was, where damage that wasn't so bad was, and they basically tagged all those locations based on damage severity uh, and what happened, combined that with the satellite and radar data and came up with kind of a map of what the tsunami did. Then they came up with two hypotheses and said, well, could a strike slip kind of uh, generated tsunami, well, generated earthquake cause a tsunami like this or would it have had to have been a landslide? They modelled both and what they found was that a, 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 um, a tsunami of that magnitude could have only been generated by a large submarine landslide. The, uh, the strike slip kind of earthquake just couldn't have caused it. So that um, really tells us that these, you know, unpredictable submarine landslides mm. that, that just as devastating as, as regular earthquakes as well. Um, and unfortunately, in that case, there's just not much you can do about warning. Yeah. So super, anyway, really interesting, way to combine, yeah, really interesting way to combine social media stuff. Yeah, yeah. We're in a sea of data. Sea of data. Yeah. Hey. There you go. Uh, Sunday morning, isn't it? Dr. Ray, what do you got for us? Uh, Dr. Shane, I have a, a story that grabbed my interest where Researchers from the Department of, I love this, nanoengineering and chemical engineering have developed enzyme-powered robots for active and target drug delivery made out of living cells. And so this is a, a field of drug delivery I had not heard of before, where you transform natural cells to make them functional, biocompatible micro-robots. Uh, and the idea is that if these robots, the difference is they're not like transmitting radio, they're they're actually the same thing as a living cell, but they're actively moving under their own propulsion. And, and that extra motion in, in the circulatory system really in, can enhance the actual amount of uh, effectiveness for targeted drug delivery if you're trying to drive a drug-laden cell to connect with another cell. Um, and, and what they did that was interesting was that people have tried to convert cells into micro-robots before to give them motion. And a lot of times the, the propulsion is chemically based, which would, of course, be called chemical phoretic motion. Um, but uh, the challenge is a lot of times what they do is they kind of make a, a cyborg type cell. It's a hybrid cell. They've used what are either harsh or bioincompatible methods to deliver the propulsion. So what these researchers did is they, they took platelet cells and coated half of the cell with an enzyme. Uh, and so when you coat half of a, 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 an engineered particle with um, only half of it, you um, and the other half is clean. It's called a Janus cell. Um, and, and what it is is this enzyme then reacts with urea to provide chemical propulsion. Uh, and, and, and so they, they converted platelets to be able to move under their own power in the presence of urea uh, to enhance or um, 
drive micro robots. And, and they did some rough testing and, and model systems showing that these micro robot cells made out of platelets um, were able to drive model target drug systems for cancer treatment. Uh, much better into cells. And they were quite excited as, as this is a first step into getting into a, a micro robot that's all biocompatible. Um, and I was just fascinated by the idea that I've heard of micro swimmers or, or micro robots for quite a while. They're, they're developing to try to mix in lakes and things like that. But the idea of making it out of biocompatible components is quite a different challenge. And it was pretty impressed. And and they think that the, 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 because this micro-robot works on urea, um, one of the first places they might be able to look at trying to develop a treatment in this area would be in bladder cancer, where they could drive targeted drug delivery, and there's plenty of urea floating mm. around there. Mm. Uh, but they, they, they think it has this potential to, as a platform or approach, to, to move to micro-robots made out of our own cells. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, you want to have a good power supply. You don't have to yeah. add to if you've got it inside your body already. Why not use yeah. it? Hmm. Yeah. And remember, it's not AI. It's just a, a cell that moves around a little faster than it would normally. Yeah. Stacy, what's happening? Oh, hi. I, I've i got a bad news story today, which is uh, a bit of a shame. Last, last, last month, Bailey was talking about you know the um, benefits of unintended consequences of COVID-19 on global CO2 uh, emissions, which mm. is produced. But uh, I've got a flip side now. We've got a lot of evidence emerging about the broader health system effects associated with COVID infection. Uh, it's effects not just on the respiratory system, but also other parts of the body, such as the kidney and brain. But we're also starting to see and uh, understand the collateral damage that COVID-19 lockdowns and restrictions in the movement of people and services and goods are having on other public health programs, such as uh, vaccination programs, uh, designed to prevent other important infectious diseases such as measles and polio and diphtheria and the like. So um, a new study from the United States has just come out recently examining trends in routine childhood immunisations um, before and during the period of lockdown in the States. And in particular, what they've found is, unfortunately, there's been a dramatic decline in the number of um, measles-containing vaccines being ordered by doctors around the States and then a corresponding reduction in the number of um, routine childhood immunizations for uh, measles are uh, being delivered to, delivered to children uh, during that period of lockdown, lockdown. And these trends uh, were observed as early as one week after the national um, uh, emergency was declared. And so the concern is, is that the decline in the uptake of routine childhood immunizations may well lead to this cohort of children who remain susceptible to measles and other vaccine-preventable diseases um, should they remain unvaccinated going forward. And um, the and also the trend is going to be reflected uh, across the globe, so uh, not just in the United States but elsewhere and WHO and other public health agencies have indicated that the provision of um, routine immunisation services is likely to be impacted in at least 68 countries uh, and this might affect uh, approximately 80 million children. So it's um, a pretty significant uh, disruption. Um, by and large, it's because we're trying to restrict mass gatherings. So when when we're needing to implement mass vaccination campaigns, the WHO has um, uh, you know recommended in March the disruption of these services. But there's also other factors that are at play. So parents and families who are reluctant to um, to leave home because of restrictions um, on movement or perhaps fear of getting COVID nineteen themselves. And then other factors at play, such as healthcare workers who are unable to be deployed um, to various countries to administer these vaccination programs, 
um, or in fact because of restrictions to travel or because they've been deployed to COVID response activities. So it's pretty unfortunate um, that all these unintended consequences of COVID-19 we're starting to realise. Um, mm. And I, part of the importance is, is we're going to, as we're grappling with COVID-19 going forward, we've got to, we're rolling out really enhanced testing, surveillance and control activities for COVID-19. But part of the challenge is that we'll be having to implement these activities alongside other public health yeah. uh, immunization programs. So can, can I can I throw something at you, Stacey, just quickly? And that is, I, I think we need to take a, a different approach to this with vaccinations. And I, I can see, look, we, we had a problem with vaccinations before um, this came out. And I, I throw a lot of the blame on that in, in terms of poor communication around the, the value and, and, you know, the reasons behind getting vaccinated. But at the moment, the last thing anyone wants to do, and I had to do this this week with my son, is go to a GP clinic or anywhere where there might be sick people. So the idea of going anywhere like that for any sort of vaccines is off the table, frankly, in my view. I, I think we should be offering vaccines at, you know, just outside Coles and places where people are going anyway through necessity and and looking at alternatives. I mean, we've, we've seen, you know, the, the value in shopkeepers giving out malaria vaccines in certain parts of Africa and so forth because they're trusted. We need to take a different approach than the, the stock standard, oh, you'll get it at school, oh, you'll get it at your GP because... People don't want to go there. I, I I took a coughing child to a GP clinic, and I thought I was getting on a submarine. You know, it was so everything was so contained and controlled, and the COVID test had to happen, and et cetera, et cetera. And no one wanted to be there. Like it was not an environment where you would go as an option if you didn't think you had to. And of course, we we have to get vaccines. It's really important, but you know, the the option there is has got to be changed. We've got to we've got to think more laterally. Yeah, absolutely. And try to sort of, uh, the, you know, what we're doing with COVID testing around the globe is like trying to increase access to testing uh, for the people that are having trouble getting out and going to get to their GP to get testing. So it's about bringing testing to the people. But the same, yeah, absolutely the same needs to be applied to other public health interventions mm. and whether or not we take more innovative approaches um, so that these sort of, um, you know, uh, global sort of efforts that, Yep. Uh, all the advances that we've taken in in reducing measles and polio and things like that aren't hampered by um by these unintended consequences yeah. of COVID nineteen. Ab- yeah. Absolutely. Thanks so much for for doing news, and um, we'll chat to you again real soon. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Thanks, Dr. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Good to chat to you guys. Triple R. We have our first guest for today on the line, Dr. Zoe Thomas from the University of New South Wales. Good morning, Zoe. How are you going? Morning, Shane. Thanks very much for having me on your show. It's great to talk to you. And it's really nice for someone in New South Wales to speak to a Melbournian. I know that, you know, we're, we're the infected city of Australia at the moment. You're not supposed to engage with us, but uh, we appreciate you chatting to us anyway. Oh, no worries. And uh, a social distance uh, phone call is, is much better than me coming down to Melbourne <laughs> at the moment. Yeah. Look, we, we would have loved to have had you in the studio, but we'll we'll make do of this for the moment. Now, your your work, I saw the press release from your work uh, earlier this week, and I was just sort of blown away by, I suppose, the the period over which you're looking with your work and just the, the complexity of some of it. So we, I think we should, let's just try and step our way through it. Um, first of all, you look at a lot of the, the sea ice around Antarctica and, and the value of that. So tell us first, why is the sea ice around Antarctica so important, especially with regards to carbon capture and storage and so forth? Yeah, so sea ice is almost the end of the story, really. Um, It's all about uh, carbon, as you said, and uh, sea ice has an important role to play in how um, the ocean around Antarctica actually manages to suck up carbon 
um, and store it within uh, within its oceans and within its, its sediments. And it turns out uh, that sea ice actually plays quite an important role in that, a reasonably complex role, um, but something that's only just sort of been realised to be um, an important factor. Mm. So now the the ocean around Antarctica as as a sink for carbon, how, how does that work? How does the carbon enter the ocean, get stuck in the ocean, stay in the ocean, whatever, like what's, what's that process? Well, there are several processes that um, sort of uh, enable the ocean to, to store carbon. Um, it's an exchange in the, between the atmosphere and the ocean. So just chemically, the ocean is able to store some of that carbon within the ocean itself. But the particular process that we were looking at in this work was actually the role of um, biology in storing this carbon. So little microorganisms, little uh, plankton, phytoplankton, these tiny little creatures that live within the ocean, they actually, uh, their skeleton is actually made of carbon and other components. And so when these microorganisms grow, they actually take that carbon from the ocean and from the atmosphere for their skeletons. Um, And when they grow, that means that that carbon is stored and if they die and sink to the ocean floor that carbon is then locked away mm, right. it then can't go back into the atmosphere yeah and presumably um we're talking about fairly large amounts here because the you know the ocean we're talking about is not small is it so the the sort of capture capture area is huge yeah absolutely uh, and the ocean is one of it's, it's the one of the largest um carbon carbon sinks so understanding exactly that process of how carbon is is stored into it or not um that's that's a really important part, uh, part of that and so the way uh one of the ways to help that understanding is to look into the past to see what processes happened in the past that we might know about and therefore look at how the carbon dioxide has changed in the past and how we can learn from that in terms of our future carbon storage. Mm. And so that's the part I find fascinating, that looking into the past bit. How do you go about that? Uh, because obviously you're not diving to the bottom of the ocean and collecting some of this material. Or, or I assume no, you're not. No. Yeah. no. So actually what we're uh, using is we're using Antarctic ice cores to help uh, tell us about the ocean sediments, uh, the ocean and the sea ice. So we use a site that is not too far from the coast of Antarctica, which helps to give us a signal of what is happening in the ocean. So we, um, some of our team, have gone to uh, a place in Antarctica, um, the Patriot Hills, and uh, it's actually a really special type of place in Antarctica. It's called a a blue ice area, Mm. and that's because the ice is actually a blue colour. But the reason the ice is this this very bright blue colour is because it's actually really ancient ice that has been upwelled to the surface. So you may have heard of these really strong catabatic winds that happen in Antarctica, um, you know, that blow people over. So these winds blow over mountain ranges, and on the lee side of these mountains, the air is so cold and so dry that it actually ablates the ice, so it melts the ice, which, due to complex sort of um, glacial processes, means the ice that used to be kilometers underneath the sheet actually is drawn up to the surface so you're walking along the ice and there's actually ice that's thousands of years old that is directly on your feet and so we're able to use this ice and just walk along the surface which actually means that we're walking almost back through time so we can collect ice from the surface we know how old it is and then uh, instead of drilling kilometers down we can actually just use the ice on the surface to tell us about 
what happened in the past. That, that's that's amazing. And presumably with these high winds, there's does it not snow there at all or there's just no snow left? I mean, you know, whenever I see images of, of Antarctica, I, I, I imagine you sort of having to dig through, you know, metres of snow to get to that ice core. Yeah, no, it, it does snow in that region. Um, but the thing is, because it's so windy that the snow is just blown off mm. immediately. Um, so there's, it's just ice on the surface. Um, you know, occasionally there might be a snowstorm, but that, that will always get blown away. And so you walk along and you can, the pictures are just fascinating. They're just this beautiful crystal blue uh, and it's just slippery ice. Yeah. And have you, have you been down there yourself or have you not had Unfortunately, a I haven't. This, this work has been done over many, many years. And uh, I actually just joined the team. Um, just before they went on their expedition down to Antarctica, so I was—I uh, actually had online uh, conversations on Google Hangouts with them yep. when they were down in Antarctica. Um, but no, sadly, I was not one of the team members that went down. But hopefully, in the future, I might have the opportunity to go to one of these really special areas. Yeah, although it's not quite one of the sunlit beaches of Antarctica, the region you're talking about sounds like the worst place on earth. I mean, um, presumably you get to—you know—you get to visit some of the other sections of Antarctica while you're down there. It must be—it must be extremely dangerous to go to that particular region, I assume. So actually, um, this particular site, one of the reasons we know about it is that it used to be an old runway. So these oh. blue ice areas, and there's a couple in, in Antarctica, because they're so smooth and, and they're guaranteed pretty much to have ice rather than snow, that actually makes it quite a safe landing spot for aircraft. So it used to be one of the bases for um, a logistics company that used to take scientists and tourists down yeah. to Antarctica. That has been that runway has been retired now, um, but that's one of the reasons we know about it. And so, because it's a, a blue ice area, it's not. To, I mean, within the realms of dangerousness, uh, it's possible to get down there on yeah. um, a small plane. Um, so it's yeah, it's a safe Not too bad. So, so when you you're looking back, how far back in time are you looking with this particular ice that you're seeing, and and, and what what sort of things have um, have come out of that? I know an important paper was um, was published recently in Nature Geoscience by you and the team. Um, what what was the sort of outcome of that, and and these ice um, these ice material sort of examinations you've been doing? Yeah, so this particular area actually spans um, from about the last 10,000 years to the last 140,000 years. So that spans a really interesting mm. period of time where you have periods where it was both much colder than today during the last ice age and also much warmer than today during the last interglacial. Uh, so this particular study uh, that's just been published in Nature Geoscience was based on a period of time during the last ice age where um, the earth warmed very quickly and the carbon dioxide increased a lot over this period. So it was about 18,000 years ago to about 12,000 years ago until we got to our fairly stable, warm climate that we have now. But that was a period of very rapid sea level change and very rapid uh, carbon dioxide increase. So um, I just checked this morning to see what, um, what carbon levels we're at at the moment. So mm. now today we're at 416 parts per million. And uh, during the last ice age, we actually rose from 190 parts per million to 280 parts per million. So it's almost a 100 number mm. of increase, but still nothing, nothing like what we're at today. But it's the, the amount of increase and the, the time period that that increase uh, happened over that we were particularly interested in. But the important thing about this 
period is that it wasn't a steady increase. There was actually a pause in the middle. So it's about 2,000 years where the carbon dioxide didn't increase when it sort of should have in some ways. And so it's this pause that we were looking at to see what processes caused this pause because this could be important for the future if we're looking at the stabilization of carbon dioxide what was this natural process that happened sort of 12,000 years ago, 15,000 years ago, sorry, that caused this pause. Mm. And, and do we know what that, that was at this point? Yeah, so we, we think we sort of found the answer. Um, so it involved actually looking at little microorganisms that blow onto the, um, onto the ice uh, sheet. So we're able to um, detect these microorganisms through a technique called fluorescence. So you may have, uh, when you're in a nightclub and you're wearing a white T-shirt, that Mm. white T-shirt sort of glows a bit. Uh, So it's a sort of similar um, idea. And so we can detect these microorganisms because they're able to fluoresce under certain light conditions. Um, And so we can actually extract these from the ice to um, determine how that changes. And what we found is that during this 2,000-year pause in carbon dioxide, we get a lot of these um, microorganisms and dust and things like that in the ice. So the, the question is, why, why, does that, why does that mean that there's more um, there's a pause in carbon dioxide? And using some carbon climate modeling uh, techniques, we think the answer is linked to Sea ice. Mm. Well, look, it's and the amount of sea ice presumably controls what what's happening there with regards to that interchange between the atmosphere and these these little critters. Yeah, exactly. So basically, on a on a fairly simple level, um, when the sea ice uh, expands, which it does in winter, there's lots of um, organisms that are blown and and end up on top of the sea ice, just as they ended mm. up on top of the ice sheet where we are yep. in this blue area it's the same process it ends up on top of the sea ice also dust and nutrients that are blown from other places but during this period actually what happened is that there was a large amount of growth and then in the summer it all melted and so all of these microorganisms some of them alive some of them dead dust nutrients all fell into the ocean which caused this cornucopia of food and life in Mm. the ocean so lots of microorganisms um were around, there were algal, algal blooms, all these things enabled the capture of carbon. And we think that is what has caused this uh, pause, pause in carbon dioxide. Well, it, Zoe, it's an absolutely beautiful story, and I, I wish we could talk about it for another 20 minutes. Unfortunately, I've got another couple of guests I've got to get to, but um, congratulations on this work. It, it really um, brings together quite a few different areas of research and, and, and some, as you say, some long-term studies that have, have taken a, long, you know, a lot of people a long way from, from Australia to, to go and do and so forth. You, you must be excited being in this new group and I hope you, um, hope you have a good time working on this stuff and good luck on getting down to Antarctica on the next collection. Thank you very much. That was uh, Dr. Zoe Thomas from the University of New South Wales doing some fascinating work with regards to carbon capture um, by our natural earth and the things that, that go on. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. On the line now, we have Dr. Marissa Parrott. She's from Zoos Victoria. She's been on the show a couple of times before. Marissa, good morning. How are you going? 
I'm great, thanks, Jane. Thanks for having me back. Oh, look, it's great to talk to you. I always hear about these amazing areas of conservation work that you're doing there at the zoo, and um, they they fascinate me. And I saw on Twitter the other day you posted some ridiculously cute picture of you holding a mountain pygmy possum, and I thought we've got to get Marissa back on. So, where were you when you were holding one of these these little guys? They're so cute. They're one of the most adorable animals and super tough as well for such a little animal. They live up in the alpine zone. So I've been working with them with our partners from Parks Victoria out past Falls Creek for most of this year now with our program developing supplementary food for them called Bogong Bickies to help them after fires. Yeah, wow. It's it's incredible. And they seem like the the imagery I saw, they seem not, not exactly tame, but certainly not freaked out by you caring for them in that way and interacting with them? They're a very cruisy little animal. They're actually an absolute delight to work with. Very few people ever get to see them because they do live in remote areas. They spend five to seven months asleep under the snow every year Mm. and they live in boulder fields. But when you do interact with them, they're one of the most sweet little animals you'll ever find. Yeah, that's amazing stuff. Now, you've been working on something else recently which I wanted to talk to you about because when I read this, uh, when the Zoos Victoria comms team sent me this information, I I tell you, you know, I teared up a little bit because it just sounds so so full on. Um, But the Eastern Barred Bandicoots, uh, you recently, so these these are extinct in the wild, right? They are extinct in the wild on mainland Australia. So you can actually trace every single one of the mainland eastern barred bandicoots to our programs at Zoos Victoria and our breeding program that's been running for 29 years. So it's a really long-term program. It's incredible. And and so you you personally just released a few into the wild. Tell us about that. How do you do that? I mean, where'd they come from? How do you do it? What's the process? It's it's one of my favourite parts of my job, putting these gorgeous animals that should be back in our grasslands, back out to live as wild. And so we've been running this program for a long time with the Eastern Bard Bandicoot recovery team. And we know that the main issue for the bandicoots is foxes. So we have to place these gorgeous animals back into areas that are safe from the introduced red fox. And that includes behind fences at places like Mount Rothwell and onto islands at places like Phillip Island and French Island. So just two weeks ago, I had that really wonderful moment uh, working with Conservation Volunteers Australia and Parks Victoria, taking some of the bandicoots that we had bred at Melbourne Zoo, at Werribee Zoo and at Serendip Sanctuary out to live as wild. And that moment where you open the box and you see them spring out and disappear off into these grasslands is just amazing. Yeah, I mean, how close were you sort of in contact with them like during their time at the zoo? Did I mean, did you name them? Did you like did you form relationships with them? I mean, they're super cute cute animals. They're just gorgeous. We do get to know their parents really well. We do often name them or we work with schools and the school kids yeah. name them, which is really nice. And so in the last year we've actually had some really amazing experiences with them. We had the largest ever release of Eastern Barred Bandicoots to French Island in October last year. We've released Bandicoots to Hamilton and to Churchill Island. And then this most recent one was to Woodlands Historic Park near Tullamarine. So you do get to know them really well and seeing them go out to live as wild and then being able to monitor them and see them produce babies out Mm. there. 
it's a really special moment for all of us, uh, for our keepers, our vets and our partners. Yeah. I was going to ask you about the monitoring. How, how do you follow up on them and how successful is their transition into, you know, this this non-controlled environment? Well, we've been working with them for such a long time with the Eastern Bard Bandicoot Recovery Team that we have a really good protocol and there's really high survival and breeding success after we release them. They actually do really well as long as there are no foxes around And so we monitor them in new areas like the islands using radio trackers and transmitters. It's actually a really hard thing with a bandicoot. Most animals you can put a collar on and track them that way. Bandicoots are a triangle shape and don't have a neck. So we have to attach their little transmitters to their tails. And then after a few weeks, they just naturally drop off. So we can monitor them that way. And then we work with our partners to do trapping across the year to look at their health, their numbers, their breeding, and make sure we're doing the best thing by the bandicoots. Mm. And, and I mean, I hate to sort of ask this question, but what, what sort of attrition is there there? Are all the ones that have been released still going strong or do you lose half? Like, how, how well do they do? They do extremely well. There's really variable success across species when you release them back out to the wild and particularly early in programs where you're still learning which is why monitoring is so important. Mm. But with the Eastern Bard Bandicoots, we actually have really high success rates releasing animals from the captive program and animals translocated from other fenced or island locations. Uh, We're still looking at exactly what the best ways are to put animals into populations where there are already residents. It's harder to monitor them there, but we know for going into new areas or areas where there's a lot of space, they do really, really well, which is mm, great. That's good. Now, if if all that isn't enough and you're not busy enough with that stuff, you, you've also been working on some of the displaced species with regards to the bushfires and understand there was a group of bristle birds that you, you know, worked with and got essentially out of the way of, of the bushfires and, and have now re-released them. Tell us about that. That's such an exciting program where we've been working for such a long time with the Eastern Bard Bandicoots. The bristle birds are actually completely new to us. We've never worked with that species before, mm. but obviously we had some of the worst bushfires on record this last summer and the bristle birds are critically endangered. They're only less than 150 in Victoria and the fires were headed straight towards them at Howe Flat. So we worked with Monash and Wollongong Unis, with the Department of Environment, with Corumban Sanctuary, who's held them before, and pulled together an amazing team from Zoos Victoria and Melbourne Zoo, who were flown in ahead of the fires on Singapore Defence Force Chinook helicopters. We extracted 15 of the beautiful little birds and took them to Melbourne Zoo, where we cared for them. And just recently in April, we were able to release some of those birds back out to the wild where it's nice and safe. They're being monitored by the Department of Environment. They're looking really good. And we still have a few with us at Melbourne Zoo too. Yeah. Why why don't we hear about this stuff in the media? I I find, you know, we we heard about this amazing attempt to, you know, and successful attempt to make sure the Wollamai Pines are all good good to go up in Queensland. But we don't hear about these stories, you know, going in on on one of these helicopters and, you know, it's like a a crack team that goes in and grabs all these birds and saves them. What's the media doing? (laughs) Oh, we'd love to have the stories. That's why we love talking with you about this, Shane, because it's such an amazing story. We had helicopters. The team had to be evacuated Mm. a bit early because of the fires. We've had these beautiful birds cared for behind the scenes at Melbourne Zoo. And to see them go back out when it's safe and those fires are over is great. Uh, We also helped to evacuate brush-tailed rock wallabies out from our partners at Tidbin Villa to live at Healesville Sanctuary. So it was a huge amount of work happening 
with the bushfires and massive thank you to everyone who donated to our bushfire fund because there's so much work left to do. But we have these success stories where we're learning for the future, we're yeah. saving those animals. Uh, it's been a really big year for us. Yeah, I can imagine. It. And just right before I let you go quickly, I can imagine just like Triple R has had a similar experience where you know our normal sources of revenue have been taken away by by this scenario. And I suspect zoos Victoria, you know, being closed across uh, the state has had a similar scenario. It, are the zoos back open now to the public? I, I under, it, are they are they able to take patrons at this point? I know this might be outside your area, but no, no, very happy to discuss that. We were closed during the worst of that lockdown for yep. safety, but we are really happy that we are now open. It's to restricted numbers to make sure yep. everyone's safe and can keep that distance. So make sure if you do want to visit Melbourne Zoo, Hillsville Sanctuary, and Werribee Zoo, you book online. But we would love to see everyone come back to our zoos. And we know our animals are pretty excited to see everyone come back too, which is yeah, great. So fantastic. book online, come and see us. We would love to see everyone. Fantastic. Well, Marissa, as always, it's a, a pleasure talking to you. And look, thank you for doing the work that you're doing. I know a lot of Australians aren't aware of it, but it, it really is inspirational to hear these stories of these releases of these animals. I'm sure it tears you up when when you do it um, because you, you do get such a, a connection to these animals. But but thank you and well done and continue the good work and thanks for the chat today. Thank you so much. We love our animals. We're still doing our conservation work. So happy to come on anytime to tell you about it. Well, we'll get you back on soon. Uh, Dr. Marissa Parrott from Zoos Victoria, folks. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Welcome back, everybody. It's Einstein and Go-Go time. We've got 10 minutes left. We have time for one more guest. We have Dr. Maxine Bonham from the Department of Nutrition and Dietetics at Monash University. Maxine, how are you going? Hi, Shane. I'm great, thank you, and thanks for the invite. Oh, look, it's great to talk to you because when I saw the uh, area that you're working on, I was fascinated. And this is something that I, I suspect a lot of people don't think about it very often, but it's you're really looking at the health of our shift workers, of whom there are many, and often they get left out of many of these sort of studies, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the reasons we're interested. Almost 20% of the population works shift work and are not really considered um, in, in other studies. So, um, yeah, we, we spend a lot of our time working with, with shift workers and looking at how the work that they do impacts their, their health. Mm. So I had, a, I had a good friend of mine years ago who was a shift worker, and I noticed that he, he would tell me a lot of stories about the the sort of various ways in which his shift work was affecting his sleep cycle, his his sort of cons- consuming different foods, and he was sort of one of these people. And I guess it varies from person to person. He was, you know, one one day he'd be after he'd be afternoon for a week, overnight for a week, you know, daytime for a week, and then a week off. And it just seemed like it, to, he explained to me it was like always being on an international flight. How does how does that compare to the sorts of people you're talking talking about? Yeah, that, that that's exactly right. Um, those shift workers are the ones doing these rotating shifts, mm. and, and and basically our, our body likes to sleep overnight and eat during the day. And and these shift workers, yeah, don't know whether they're coming or going. They they've got a night shift and they've got a day shift and they've got days off, and their body never really gets to adapt to a a fixed schedule, and that has consequences for for their health. Mm. So, so what what sort of health problems do we see in shift workers? So the the um, they have you know similar chronic disease risk as the population as a whole, but just uh, at higher levels. So, the the longer you're a shift worker compared to being a day worker, you have higher risks of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and cancer as well. So, 
just a greater risk of all those sort of chronic diseases that, that plague the population as a whole. Mm. Do, do, um, and they, they also seem to gain, gain weight more quickly as well on starting shift work. So yep. um, a, a lot of outcomes. Yeah. And do we have a, a feel for, say, if you take one of those areas like diabetes, how much higher the risk is? Or is that really dependent on the individual and the amount, the, sort of the amount of shift work they do? Yeah, it's, it, you're right. It's completely dependent on the amount of shift work and the individual. But the some of the data shows that at the highest level, it's up to a 40% increased risk of diabetes oh, and wow. cardiovascular disease. So, so quite significantly increased. Yeah, that's extraordinary. Now, These are people who've worked a, a long time, but yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah, no, that, that's an extraordinary number. Now, you, you work in the area of nutrition and finding strategies to reduce this risk. So talk, talk us through how you go about that. Okay, so we started um, originally just looking at um, if you had a meal in the evening time and a meal in the morning and looking at the response to blood glucose, so a, a sort of a risk factor for diabetes. And, and what we saw that giving even healthy people um, a meal late at night, the glucose response was six times higher than mm. during the day. And that made us start thinking about the shift workers who have no choice but to eat every night, overnight, and several times a night, and what that may mean for their blood glucose and diabetes risk. So that was where we really started with that. And since then, we've been trying to look at interventions that may help improve the sort of the, the diabetes risk. Right. Um, um, and now, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so you're saying that, because I'm sorry, I hear this and I worry. I'm a bit of one of these late night snackers. I tend to snack into the late hours of the night. Is this, this is a problem for the way we produce glucose in the body? Um, yeah, it is um, in that we are... Glucose follows a sort of a circadian rhythm across the day and towards the end of the day, uh, our insulin sensitivity is reduced so it doesn't control our blood glucose as well. So whereas during the, the daytime, our blood glucose goes up and comes down quite quickly, mm. it, that's not happening at nighttime. The glucose is staying, going higher and staying up for longer. So yeah, it, it is different at nighttime. And yes, there's a lot of us that are late night snackers, including myself. Yeah. So presumably though, and uh, and this is, a, I suppose, where you must be heading with some of the shift worker advice is we need to therefore be very careful about not so much eating late at night, but what exactly what we eat. Is that is that the goal? Yeah, there's two things. We, we actually think there's two important messages to get across. One may be trying to encourage uh, a period of fasting overnight so that we're not continually eating overnight so we don't put our body in that position to keep having to deal with uh, metabolizing our nutrients. Mm -hmm. But also we think there may be better foods to eat at nighttime as well. And that's one of the difficulties for shift workers because they don't have the access to foods yeah. that you have. If you work during the day, there's no canteens or healthy food outlets. Often it's what you can bring in or, or the vending machine. Mm, yeah, it's a shocking series of options. Most of us who've been to a, an airport or a hospital after business hours, you know that uh, half of the place or more shuts down and you just can't, can't get to things. So now you're running a particular study uh, soon and you're recruiting for that study, or I think it's, it's been ongoing. You've had a bit of a pause for, um, for the COVID scenario, but tell us a bit about this study and what you need in terms of people signing up. Okay, so this study is uh, one thing we, we saw early on is that the shift workers complain and mention that they put on weight quite quickly when they start shift work. And because of their unusual working hours and their availability food, no one's really specifically looked at weight loss interventions for shift workers. So we got funding at the end of, uh, I think, 2018, actually, to actually look at three dietary strategies in shift workers. Um, and they're trying to work out one that may be best suited to their lifestyle and their working hours. So we're looking to recruit across South, and, um, South Australia, actually, up to 400 
shift workers who are looking to lose weight and we want to enroll them into one of three different weight loss strategies and see how they um, work or how they are able to lose weight over a six-month six period. Mm. Um, and then we'll follow them up for 12 months. So it's, it's a long study and it's a big study and it's a really challenging study, but it's a really, really important study. Yeah, no, it sounds excellent. And how do people get involved? How do they make contact? Okay, so we have a, if you were to Google Monash or Swift study, um, we have a website set up which has all about the study on it and the explanatory statement and the consent form and contact details for researchers. So, yeah, if you just Google Swift study Monash um, in your web browser, it will it will come up straight away. And I think the other thing is if you just type in Med Swift, that right. should take you there as well. But we, you're right, we, we had a bit of a hiatus for, for COVID where we stopped having people in and stopped recruiting, but we're, we're just now back fully recruiting as of, as of last week and looking to really get up and running again. Sounds great. And look, I, I think a lot of people aren't aware of just, as you say, just the sheer number of people who do shift work in our society and how their health is affected by this. It's something that we, we need people to do it, but um, it's not the best thing for them. Maxine, um, Final question for you, is is every single person working in nutrition at Monash University, they're good communicators? Because we've had you now, we've had, uh, we had Barbara, we had Georgia the other week. It seems like all of you are, are fantastic science communicators, which is great. Oh, well, that's good to hear that because I'm very nervous usually about coming on to do these types of things. But um, I think the more we do it, um, the better we get at it. And yes, we have some great staff and communicators in the nutrition department. So um it's, it's yeah. a really important message to get across, trying to be able to explain nutrition simply. So, yeah, I guess, we've, I guess we're getting used to having to do it well. Well, it, it, it's, it's great to hear from all of you, and it's great to hear all this work's being done here in Melbourne and in some areas that are really fascinating. Um, you know, we spoke to, to Georgia about the work she's doing in hospitals and nutrition in hospitals, which is something that I'm sure everyone's had some experience with. But um, your work on, on shift workers is, or with shift workers is, is great as well. Thanks so much for chatting to us today, and good luck with the study. I hope you get all the recruits you need and that it goes well. Thanks ever so much, Shane. Thanks so much, Maxine. Folks, uh, we're almost out of time here on Einstein and Gogo, and I've got to get out of the studio because a little bit later today, I'm going to announce uh, something very similar to the 20 in 20 program we did where we interviewed 20 PhDs in 20 minutes, but we got a few calls from some of the postdocs, the people who have already finished their PhDs to do the same thing. So later this afternoon, I'm going to be announcing this, and I have this sneaking suspicion that I'm going to get flooded with a lot of emails and requests as we did last time. But that will be a great show for you to listen to next week, folks. We're going to give some of these slightly older researchers a, a chance to uh, throw their hat into the ring and tell us all about their research in a very short period of time. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic weekend. And if at all possible, people, just stay at home. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of RRR's Einstein and Gogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.